What's up, Betamaxers? Welcome to Celluloid Fever Dreams, episode 37. A weekly walk through the history of movies, trying to find those films that are overlooked and underappreciated. As always, I'm your host, Wyndham Jennings. Hope this week so far has been good to all of you. Uh, I've been trying to catch up on some trailers, uh, see if there's anything really interesting coming out to get me back into a theater. Uh, yeah, besides, yeah, there's the usual uh, big budget films I think that everybody's sort of looking forward to. I, I'm interested in the Spider-Man trailer it just dropped. Uh, I, I really feel out of it. I didn't know the Matrix sequel was uh, so close to being released. You know, there's uh, yeah, and besides that, there's a few films you know I've called in like trailer compilations online, or, or uh, you've seen people post about a little bit on Twitter or uh, Instagram that I'm looking forward to. You know, probably not gonna catch them in theaters, but uh, you know, maybe a rental or uh, you know, a few months later when they hit one of the streaming services. Uh, American Sausage Standoff. It's just looks like looks like it's right up my alley. A little bit of a weird premise, a uh, sort of an offbeat comedy. Uh, what's the other other one? Uh, oh, a uh, small engine repair. It's John got John. Uh, is it Berthnell? Uh, he played the Punisher in the uh, Netflix series a few years back. He's also on Walking Dead. Uh, a good crime thriller. Uh, and the, uh, what was the third one I just saw the trailer for? Uh, actually, there's four of them. What was the, what was the other two? Oh, uh, uh, Wild Indian. That was another uh, crime drama I thought looked interesting. And uh, I can't remember the name of the last one. I don't really want to stop recording to look it up. But it had uh, uh, Tyessa Farmiga from The Final Girls in it. Uh, what, what? John in the Hole, I think, is the name, name of it. Uh, but yeah, there's four. If you get a chance, go check the trailers out to them. Uh, you know, that's that's uh, some of them I'm really looking forward to. And uh, if I'm honest, at least two of them are probably going to wind up in future episodes of the podcast. Uh, actually got to watch some movies this week. Uh, you know, work's been really crazy this year. I can count the number of weekends I've had off on uh, one hand. And one of those was because I just finally took vacation and took a few days off so I could, could uh, get to, uh, a weekend off. Uh, but yeah, in the, like the last week, I've watched uh, Undercover Brother again. Uh, I just love the movie. just find it hilarious. Uh, cannot believe I did a sequel to it with Michael uh, Jai White taking over as Undercover Brother. I, I really like Eddie Griffin in it, and I felt that uh, him being the hero kind of helped. You know, kind of like Mike Myers as Austin Powers, it, it kind of helped sell the idea of the, the comedy and uh, made the stuff he did seem just a little little more heroic, a little more outlandish. Uh Finally got around to watching uh, Bad Boys for Life. Uh, yeah, I hadn't seen that. I'd seen all the other ones. Finally got around to, uh, to uh, seeing that and enjoying it. Uh, finally got my daughter to sit down and watch one of the horror movies that she keeps saying uh, she wants to watch. But, you know, uh, if you've listened to earlier episodes, you follow me on Twitter, you know, we've been introducing her to some of the classic horror movies. She's heard about them or seen the memes about them. She wanted to see them. Uh, we've seen... The first two Halloweens, uh, first two Nightmare on Elm Streets. Uh, what else have we seen? I don't know if Gremlins really counts. But we've seen Gremlins. We've seen uh, introduced her to Goonies. I know it's not really a horror movie, but it's one I grew up with and, and wanted to uh, watch with her. I actually got a list over on Letterbox, who's not a sponsor, wish they were, of uh, all the films that uh, she's wanted to see, and we've sat down and watched. And for the most part, I've enjoyed some of them. You know, I've enjoyed uh, just about all of them. There's a couple. You know, I'm not really the audience for them, so I'm not going to rate them or, or comment on them. But uh, I finally got her to sit down after 
about a month of saying she wanted to see the movie and watch Children of the Corn from 1984. And uh, I posted her reaction on Twitter. Uh, but if you don't follow me there, and I don't know why you wouldn't, it's you know, at Sea Fever Dreams. But uh, her reaction was pretty much she liked the story. She thought the kids were really creepy and what they were doing was creepy. Uh, but the special effects, especially when uh, the monster, uh, you know, he who walks behind the rose, killed Isaac, uh, were kind of goofy. That and the face and the explosion at the end of the film. Yeah, spoilers for a movie that's almost 40 years old. But, uh, she, you know, she thought the special effects were bad. And, and she's like, yeah, I'm sure back in your day. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, I, I think pretty much in 1984, we thought the special effects could have probably been done a little better. Uh, found out, actually, because I looked it up, I wasn't sure. That movie actually came out the same year as Terminator. So Children of the Corn and uh, Terminator are Linda Hamilton's first two movies. And how crazy is that? Honestly, that you're the first two feature films you ever do. You know, one's a, a horror cult classic, and the other is you know a sci-fi classic. We uh, we watched that on Hulu, Children of the Corn, and then got sucked into a, a rabbit hole of horror shorts. I think uh, one of them we got into was called Hulu. Well, the the group of them was called Huluween. Uh, but it's just a collection of like five to ten minute long little horror shorts. Kind of, kind of remind me of like Tales of the Crypt uh, episodes or um, like Twilight Zone episodes. They varied uh, in quality. I mean, it was stuff like the Hug and the Gilly Muck. Uh, you know, things like that. I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. And I got to say, some of them like the I really like the Hug because it seemed like it really took advantage of the format and the length. Uh, and I don't really think there's anything you'd add to it. it. Just, you know, a nice little snippet. But then there were a few that it's just, I don't know, there's a lot of reliance on jump scares. Uh, there were a few um, lippy, that's what I was trying to think of, that just right when, to me, right when it really got interesting, and it's like, okay, where is the story going from here? Ended. It's like you just got to the interesting part, and now you end it. Uh, and then some of them, like Gilly Muck, uh, I feel like could have, really worked as a, a longer story. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing a full-length movie about the Gilly Muck. Uh, it, it definitely could work well, especially for, you know, especially for, I don't I don't know what to really to call it, but for, like, the horror movies along, the, like, Goosebumps or Scary Stories Telling the Dark uh, kind of level of films, you know. Stranger Things, you know, given the age of the, the uh, characters in the short. And then some of them were just bad. But I don't, I think we watched probably another two hours of those just every time one popped up like you know this is next we would just sit there and watch it uh before we moved on to other things uh, i mentioned again another couple of movies this week uh besides the one i had to watch for the podcast i watched uh, i watched black sunday uh, starring barbara Steele. and if the name sounds familiar both the title of the movie and and the actress it's because i wound up talking about it some during episode 17 where we talked about the she beast which also stars Barbara Steele for all of 10 minutes. Uh, and to this day, Black Sunday contains uh, one of the greatest, to me, uh, movie, it has one of the greatest movie posters of all time. Just the stark black and white of it and Barbara Steele's face staring out of it. Uh, it's definitely worth a, a, a looking up. I might have to post a copy of it on my Twitter or Instagram in order to get, let you guys get a look at it. Uh, the other movie I watched was Donovan's Brain, which is a, a horror movie from the 60s. 
that features a brain in a jar that develops psychic abilities and begins possessing the scientist who is studying it. Uh, and the main reason for it is because this film is not only name-dropped in this week's movie, which is Steve Martin's 1983 vehicle, The Man with Two Brains, and listed as the character's favorite movie of all time, uh, but also because Donovan's brain directly inspired uh, this comedy film. Uh, both Martin and director Carl Reiner have gone on record as, as saying that uh, Donovan's brain was a inspiration and that uh, The Man with Two Brains could almost be seen as a loose remake of uh, this film, uh, which, which came out in 1953. So it came out 30 years after Donovan's brain. So yeah, ignore the earlier part where I said Donovan's brain was a, a 60s sci-fi sci horror. It actually came out in 1953. I need a better handwriting for my notes, apparently. So uh, what is The Man with Two Brains about? Well, as always, we start with our two-second recap. Weird things happen. Uh, now our longer uh, elevator pitch is that world-renowned brain surgeon Dr. Hafarar, and that's not a mispronunciation, that's the way they pronounce it in the movie, uh, played by Steve Martin, falls in love with one of his patients, played by Kathleen Turner, who is a femme fatale who has killed her previous husband. She stays with Martin uh, as he comes into a huge inheritance. Unbeknownst to her, though, the good doctor has fallen in love with a brain in a jar, which he, for some reason, has an unexplained telepathic link with. Realizing the brain can't survive for very long in the jar, Dr. Hafarar is racing to find a person to either transfer the brain into or a way to transfer the mind inside the brain into a new body. Released on June 3, 1983 by Warner Brothers Picture with the tagline, Steve Martin is a world-famous surgeon. He invented screw top, Ziploc brain surgery. Trust him. The film was written by uh, Steve Martin, Carl Reiner, and George Guype. Guype had uh, also worked with the two men on uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the previous film, which was a parody of uh, classic 30s noir detective stories. Uh, Guype didn't have a whole lot of stuff on uh, IMDb. This was the bulk of his uh, writing career. He unfortunately passed away in 1986. The Man with Two Brains marked the third of uh, four collaborations between Steve Martin and uh, Carl Reiner. The two worked together on Martin's feature film debut, the, the Jerk, the aforementioned Dead Men Wear No Plaid. This film and their final collaboration was the Steve Martin-Lily Tomlin uh, comedy All of Me. When the American Film Institute was putting together their 100 Years 100 Laughs, the list of the 100 funniest comedies of all time, the Man with Two Brains was actually nominated, along with All of Me and The Jerk. One other film, directed by Carl Reiner, Oh God, the George Burns, uh, John Denver comedy, was also nominated. Out of the four films that Reiner directed that were nominated, The Jerk, his first collaboration with Steve Martin, actually made it onto the list. Uh, Carl Reiner may be a familiar name to some of you. He was a, a comedy legend. His first role was in the uh, 1948 television show The Fashion Story. He really came to prominence in the 60s as a writer on The Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, he collaborated uh, with one of my personal favorite comedians slash writer slash directors, Mel Brooks, for the 2,000-year-old uh, man album, comedy album and a comedy special in the 70s. Uh, he directed a ton of movies throughout the 80s. Uh, his first film as a director was actually though in 1967 uh, Enter Laughing. Uh, besides four collaborations with Steve Martin, he also directed 
uh, Summer School, uh, the John Candy comedy Summer Rental. Uh, as a writer, he worked on the Sid Caesar show, Sid Caesar's Hour, back in the 50s. Uh, he even wrote an episode. He was still working up until his, his death uh, last year in 2020 uh, at the age of 98, if I remember correctly. Uh, as an actor and a writer, he actually wrote an episode of The Cleveland Show. Uh, he starred in the film It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which I'm probably going to wind up talking about in a future episode. It's just a hilarious comedy. Uh, he did voice work for a lot of stuff. Uh, he has been Toy Story 2. I mean, sorry, it's Toy Story 4. Most recent one, not Toy Story 2, Toy Story 4. Uh, he had a small role in the Ocean's 13 film. Uh, and reprised that role, actually, in the uh, Ocean's 8 film. The uh, one that came out, was it last year, year before last? Uh, Reiner also wrote a memoir uh, I want to check out. I believe the title of it is, uh, If You're Not in the Obituaries, Get to Work. Uh, it's based on a, a saying of his that that's, that he'd reached a certain point in his life where he'd wake up every morning, check the obituaries, and if he wasn't in them, then he knew he had things to do and he should get to work. Uh, Steve Martin plays the title role in the film, Dr. Harfar. It's uh, pronounced just like it's spelled, H-F-U-H-R-U-H-U-R. Uh, at one point, it was one of the largest and most successful stand-up comedians in the world selling out stadiums. In fact, if you watch some of his old stand-up, one of the reasons he wears the bright white suit uh, is because he wanted people who were sitting in the uh, nosebleed sections to be able to see him uh, as his stand-up uh, specials and concerts uh, uh, included some physical gags as well. Uh, in the early days of Saturday Night Live, uh, he was a frequent host. He still holds, I know he's hosted at least five times in the show's history, uh, May even be a little bit more than that. Maybe uh, six at this point. Of course, we've discussed Steve Martin before. He plays the dentist in Little Shop of Horrors, which was episode 27 of the podcast. Uh, Martin got his start as a writer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour back in the 60s. They uh, filmed on the same lot as uh, the Carol Burnett Show. And Carol Burnett actually says in her memoirs, she remembered the first time that she met Steve Martin that she knew he was going to be something because somebody that funny and with that much talent wasn't going to just be a writer for other people for very long. As I've said before, Martin's got a list of classic films, things like Roxanne, Three, Am Three Amigos, uh, L.A. Story, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with John Candy, Parenthood, Father of the Bride, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Michael Caine, Bowfinger with Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, I like some of his little offbeat films, the ones that you know, a lot of people don't consider classics. We're going to be visiting these films in future episodes. Things like uh, Leap of Faith, where he plays a, a huckster faith-healing preacher, which was just totally out of character for him at the time, considering his other films. And uh, Novocaine, which came out in 2000. Uh, Martin still acts. He's actually, at the time I'm recording this, it's not out yet, but he's done a Hulu original movie, uh, only Murders in the Building with uh, Martin Short and Selena Gomez. Kathleen Turner plays uh, Martin's patient uh, and then wife, Dolores Benedict. A uh, femme fatale who he hits with his car as she's running away from killing her previous husband. Uh, this was only the second film that Kathleen Turner had done at the time. Uh, her first was Body Heat from 1981. And uh, she says the main reason she took this role in, a com in this comedy is because it was such a send-up of her character from Body Heat. Uh, her first acting job was actually uh, in The Doctors, a television series from like 1978. Uh, other movies that she's done in, the Romance in the Stone series uh, with Michael Douglas, 
Peggy Sue Got Married with Nicolas Cage, uh, the John Waters film Serial Mom, War of the Roses, where she reteamed with Michael Douglas and uh, Danny DeVito. Uh, she's done a lot of voice work, most recently in Rick and Morty. Uh, she's probably, though, immortalized forever in so many people's minds as the voice of Jessica Rabbit from the 1987 Robert Zemeckis film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, Turner was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis in the early 90s, so she doesn't act as much as she used to. Um, I think she's gone in, well, she's gotten some better treatments, and, uh, you know, of course, medical science has uh, made some advances, of course, in the last 30 years. So she is doing more now, but there was a good stretch through the late 90s uh, and early 21st century where she hardly worked at all just because of her medical condition. So, you know, we're glad to see her back. Uh, Dr. Horror Har running over uh, Dolores with his car uh, actually leads to what I consider one of the best scenes in the film as he rushes to the sidewalk to find a little girl who's witnessed the whole thing and gives her a huge list of uh, things that he, she needs to call the hospital and say to get ready and to send out in order to save Dolores's life. And the little girl just repeats it back to him verbatim. Uh, you know what? Uh, here it is. Sir. I want you to do something very important, all right? Okay. I want you to run home, and I want you to call the ER of North Bank General Hospital, 932-1000. Tell them to set up OR6 immediately and contact anesthesiologist Isadora Turek, 472-2112, beep 12. Have them send an ambulance with a paramedic crew, light IV, D5 and W, KVO. You got it? That entire sequence was done in the first take. Carl Reiner says to this day it remains one of his favorite scenes that he has ever filmed and that he even he couldn't believe it when the little girl got it on the first try. He said, for the rest of my life, people would ask me about that scene and ask, was she reading off of a cue card? And I had to explain to them that no, she was four. She couldn't read at all. The uh, third uh, corner of our love triangle in the film is one Anne Umelmahea, again, spelt just like it's pronounced, U-U-M-E-L-L-M-A-H-A-Y-E. A telepathic brain in a jar that uh, Dr. Harfar encounters uh, while going on a seminar in Europe and uh, being invited to the home of one of the other doctors there who's engaging in brain research. Uh, Miss Umelmahe is voiced by an uncredited Sissy Spacek uh, who I'm sure the majority of you know, uh, especially if you're horror uh, aficionados, from playing the title role in the 1976 film Carrie, which was one of her earliest roles. Her first uh, film role was in the movie Prime Cut from 1972. She also starred opposite Martin Sheen in the 1973 film Badlands, which was Terrence Malick's uh, first film. I actually got a chance to watch Badlands. It's currently on uh, HBO Max. And uh, it's really interesting. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, 
I hate saying natural born killers, but it's kind of similar in that they're uh, on the run across the badlands of America. Uh, Martin Sheen is a, a spree killer. Everywhere they go, he's sort of a little unhinged and he kills people, he threatens people. Uh, it even kind of ends similarly in that once they're, uh, once they're captured, he becomes kind of a media star. You know, he's standing there in handcuffs, but he's handing off souvenirs to the officers who arrested him. Like, hey, you want my lighter? I'm sure somebody will, you know, find that valuable one day, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I guess sort of predicting uh, the obsession we would eventually have with, uh, you know, true crime here in America. Uh, some of our other notable films include Three Women with uh, Shelley Duvall, uh, JFK, which was by Oliver Stone, starred uh, Kevin Costner, uh, Hot Rod, uh, The Help. Uh, also, you know, going back to last week's episode, she starred opposite Christopher Walken and Brendan Fraser in Blast from the Past. Uh, Anne's brain is in the collection of one Dr. Alfred Necessitor. Uh, while Dr. Har Har has invented the uh, twist-off, screw, the screw-top, zip-off method of brain surgery, Dr. Necessitor is working on trying to transfer someone's mind from one brain into another. He has a collection of brains that he's experimenting on. His most successful transplant so far has been uh, one of Dr. Harfar's uh, fellow surgeons who was murdered in Europe, uh, he managed to transfer most of his mind into a gorilla. Since uh, gorillas don't have the mental capacity of a human, he was unfortunately unable to transfer all of uh, the poor man's mind. Uh, Dr. Necessitor is played by David Warner, who was born out of wedlock. Uh, I'm not saying that to be judgmental. That's literally the first thing it says on his IMDb page about him. David Warner. Born out of wedlock. I have no idea why. Uh, the first film he ever appeared in is We Joined the Navy back in 1962. Uh, he's also appeared in Straw Dogs. Uh, he is the villain in Time Bandits, villain in Tron. Uh, he appeared in Star Trek V and VI, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, the John Carpenter film In the Mouth of Madness, Titanic, uh, Mary Poppins Returns. He's done a voice for Teen Titans Go. Uh, he also starred in one of the classic horror films, The Omen. He probably had one of the uh, most infamous deaths in the film, uh, which is saying something if you've seen the movie. He's the uh, one who gets his head cut off by the plate of, plate of glass sliding off the back of the truck. It's One, it's a really cool kill, but it's almost like a Michael Bay explosion, and they have to show it to you from like several different angles, and enough times that you, uh, you get to quite noticeably see that it's a dummy head and a dummy body uh you know when just the right angle could have made it much more impactful now it's memorable memorable for uh, entirely different reasons and uh, yeah when i mentioned that he got the uh, doctor's brain through a murder he got all of his brains that he's studying through a murders uh, including miss uh, umel mahay it turns out that there's a serial killer loose in europe the elevator killer you get on on one floor alive and by the time the elevator gets to your floor you're dead and so he's been uh, through a deal with the local morgue getting all the brains and putting them in jars to keep alive for his research though they don't stay alive for very long now interestingly enough he can't hear ann uh dr harfar is the only one who can hear miss umel mahay and uh, that becomes a plot point in the film it also sets up some very dark implications for the other 20-some-odd brains in his apartment uh, that are alive in these jars and that they're 
you know, very much conscious and aware, uh, but they just have no idea of why they can't see or hear or feel anything. <laughs> and Anne's the first one to discover uh, what her what fate befell her after the uh, elevator killer had done his number on her. Uh, yeah, it, it's never explained why Anne and Doctor Har Far have this uh, connection. But again, you know that's kind of par for the course. I mean, if they're going for the Donovan's brain uh, thing, it's never explained how come uh, Donovan's brain developed psychic abilities and was able to dominate the doctor and possess him and force people to uh, bend to his will. Just go with it. It's a movie. Uh, there's a couple other faces in the cast that you might recognize. A very small throwaway part of a realtor when Dr. Harfar goes to buy a cottage in Vienna. It's played by James Cromwell. Uh, probably one of his biggest roles is the warden in The Green Mile. Uh, he's also Zephram Cochran in Star Trek First Contact. Uh, Dr. Lanning in iRobot. Uh, Captain Stacy in uh, Spider-Man 3. Uh, his first film role was Marcel in the film Murder by Death, uh, which is one that I'm definitely going to have to, when I can find it somewhere on a streaming service, talk about. Really nice, goofy uh, <laughs> um, movie from the 70s making fun of a ton of different detective tropes. Uh, actually, I'll take it back. For a whole generation of people, James Cromwell is famous, and his biggest role, the role he's probably going to be remembered for long after his death, long after my death, probably, is going to be Farmer Hoggett in Babe. Uh, interesting fact, he was also born out of wedlock. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Interesting fact about James Cromwell is he's banned for life from Wendy's in the state of Virginia, uh, apparently because he was arrested uh, after protesting one at a with a alongside PETA. That was one of the conditions of uh, his sentence is that he can no longer go into a Wendy's in Virginia. Uh, the other other face you may recognize is a uh, Timon. Uh, it's not a warthog. It's a uh, Dolores's first husband. It's played by George Firth. Uh, probably his biggest role was Van Johnson in Blazing Saddles. Uh, he's also been in the films Oh God, uh, Megaforce, where he played Professor Eggstrom. Uh, he's one of those. The minute you see him, you'll probably remember him. Re remember him from something. He's one of those character actors that you'll always see pop up. Uh, especially if you're watching stuff from the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, so I was actually curious because, as I said, Steve Martin has said that Donovan's Brain was uh, the inspiration for this film. It's also a film he really enjoyed when he was younger. Um, Carl Reiner said that the you know he was inspired by the film and he really wanted to decide to mimic some of the things in it. So I actually uh, went searching and found Donovan's Brain and watched it. Like I said, it's a 1953 film, uh, and I really liked it. You know, much like um, uh, Psychic Killer, which was the first movie we talked about on the podcast uh, way back when. It, they uh, didn't. They took advantage of the limitations of special effects at the time, if that makes sense. You know, having psychic abilities and having uh, you know the majority of them be possession of an individual. You know, it really allowed them to uh, get the most out of the story. You know, it's not not a film, even today, it's not a film that I think would be very effects-heavy. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I really thought, uh, I didn't even write down who the actors were in it, but uh, especially the main guy, his ability to, you know, do the Jekyll Hyde thing, to go from being 
loving scientist and husband uh, into ruthless industrialist and someone who will destroy and kill anyone who gets in his way, uh, it was really noticeable, not just uh, in his demeanor, but he also you know, changed the way he walked, the way he, he uh, stood, just all these, these you know, little low-key things. Uh, I, you know, I highly recommend uh, Donovan's Brain if you're into uh, you know, looking for a good... Is it? I, I'll call it a horror movie since people die in it. Uh, I really didn't like the ending because it was a little too much hand of God kind of you know ending. Uh, you know when when the doctor's assistant is three feet from the tank holding the brain and fires three shots into it and doesn't manage to hit it once. You know uh, I don't know. That's that's my one downside about it. Uh, but I recommend it if you if you count and I'm not really wanting to, but if you counted uh, the man with two brains as a loose retelling of Donovan's brain. This is actually the fourth time, this would make it the fourth time that the uh, story has been adapted into a film. Uh, it's actually, the uh, Donovan's brain originally was a novel written by Kurt Siodmak. hope I'm pronouncing that right. I recognize the name, but I've never heard it said out loud. You ever run into situations like that? You've read something and you're not really sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, Novels come out in 1942. The first adaptation was The Lady and the Monster in 1944. Uh, then we had uh, Donovan's Brain, of course, in 1953. Um, actually, actually, if you count, I, I want to correct myself again. Actually, if you count The Man with Two Brains, that's the fifth one. Because in 1962, we got two adaptations. The Brain and then The Brain That Wouldn't Die. And uh, the brain that wouldn't die is is really kind of I guess loosely based on it uh, because if I remember right that's the one with the uh, I think I think MST has done it as well as uh, made fun of the film was the one the woman with her head in a tray her fiance's keeping her alive like that uh, you know watching the movie I will say this I'm gonna go ahead and give a warning uh, because I'm getting ready to go into something else that's related to the movie but. I want to kind of stay with the movie for just a few seconds more. Um, the one thing about the film is that some of the jokes, I mean, it, it's the 80s. You know, it's, good Lord, 1980 was, 1981 was 40 years ago this year. So some of the humor uh, wouldn't fly today. Or it, it would, but there would probably be people who wouldn't be happy with it. Uh, the film itself is very much a gag a minute uh, style of film. You know, I'm not going to say it's as, as over the top or or as uh, I guess pun and gag heavy as something like Airplane, um, or or even Blazing Saddles. But the, yeah, the jokes come fast and at you, and just one after the other after the other. Not all of them hit. Uh, but there is a couple of moments in the film where you, you do kind of realize how much things have changed. Uh, Kathleen Turner throws a few slurs at Steve Martin uh, the first time he kicks her out of the house for uh, cheating on him. Uh, I guess the humor is that uh, none of those really apply to Martin or to Dr. Harfar. Uh, the other one comes later on in the film as a, a character uh, comes out of a coma and uh, discovers that the love of his life uh, has put on a few pounds while he's in the coma. And they treat it, I mean, there's there's several fat jokes. Uh, there's a scene where he's trying to carry her across, well, he does carry her across the uh, threshold after they're married. But at the same time, I'm watching this and it's like, 
she's not the the fat prosthetics, the the makeup and everything isn't done very well. I mean, they they bothered to make the face fuller and the the chin a little rounder and and a little thicker, but the rest of it isn't really that much of a difference. I mean, definitely not on the scale that uh, the other characters are reacting to it. Yeah, so so that's a couple of dings against the movie. I can't really think of anything else off the top of my head. Like I said, most of it is just you know zany. Uh, like the clip I, I played of the little girl, like that level of humor. You know, so if you're into that, then it, it's a pretty pretty hilarious movie. Uh, even Roger Ebert, who said that he wasn't a fan of Steve Martin uh, and didn't think that Steve Martin was funny at all, said there were parts of this film that were humorous to him. Uh, yeah, but watching this film and watching Donovan's Brain and uh, you know films of this ilk, it seems like brains in a jar have just been a sci-fi trope forever. And I have no, you know, for yes, yeah, happened in so many films and TV shows and and uh, you know books, etc. That it's not really something you think about. But it, I don't know, researching this film and after watching Donovan's Brain, I kind of got curious, like where did this even come from? Like what? At what point did the idea of keeping a brain alive in a jar? Uh, how how in the world did this become something that that we used in fiction? Uh, even in you know going all the way back to the Universal monsters, Frankenstein, the uh, scene where uh, is it Fritz? Uh, I don't think they called him Igor in the first movie, but uh, you know goes to steal the brain for the creature, and you know this is the two brains in jars and at the college. Uh, you know, of course, he goes back with the criminal brain. Uh, that's a scene that's not in the original book uh, by Mary Shelley. Uh, you know, that was something that was just inserted for the film. But it turns out that that is uh, is pretty historically accurate. The the brain in a jar part, not the you know stitching together different parts of dead people to bring them back to life part. That's pretty much still fiction, as far as I know. But uh, weirdly enough, even though it's not in the novel. Lord Byron Shelley, uh, Mary's husband, after he died, uh, had his brain put into a jar. Of course, he had his brain, his heart, his viscera, or you know, internal organs, put into jars so that they could be sent back to England for burial, considering that he died in Greece. Uh, but, you know, still, brain in a jar. Uh, but within a few years, they were literally uh, taking brains out of uh, corpses and trying to preserve them, usually in jars, for collections, because uh, during the 19th century, uh, there was the science, you know, put quotes around that, of phrenology. You know, you couldn't really do, you know, we didn't have, have the medical technology to look at a living brain. And, uh, you know, like everybody remembers it now as bumps on the head, but it originally started out uh, as the skull would take the shape of the brain underneath it. So, like, ridges and bumps and everything you could feel on the skull would tell you, supposedly tell you something about the brain underneath it. Uh, and of course, the shape of the skull uh, would also explain, you know, characteristics about the person. You know, the whole idea, especially once they started looking uh, at the brain, taking it out of people after they died, was they were trying to find out if there were characteristics they could see in the brain that matched the personality of the person. And of course, there was other actual scientific work uh, going on at the time of trying to figure out which sections of the brain are responsible for different things about our personality uh, and, you know, our health, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, weirdly, uh, completely coincidentally, I wasn't even really thinking about this movie uh, for when I was doing this, 
I read a book called Postcards from the Brain Museum, written by uh, Brian Burrell, which is a history of uh, scientific research and medical advances uh, about the brain and uh, neuropathy, diseases of the brain, things like that. Uh, it's an interesting read. It's a little dry at times. Uh, I enjoyed it. But yeah, you know, finding out things like they used to leave the brain intact as they looked for these, you know, in in the body as they tried to find features of it. Uh, you know, the, even after they got them out, it was a form of, and at the time I don't think they called it eugenics, but it was basically the idea of if you had the uh, proper breeding, uh, the proper uh, social status, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that your brain would be exceptional. You know, there'd be things that would be bigger. Uh, it would have more folds. Uh, there would be features about it that would reflect, uh, you know, your personality. Like if you're a great musician, there should be one part of your brain that was more developed than all the others, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, of course, in criminals, it would be just the opposite. You know, there, the sections that might be, uh, you know, more advanced or larger or, or uh, more wrinkled would be the ones that are the, uh, you know, more uh, base and, you know, uh, animalistic parts of the brain would be more developed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if you're hearing this thinking, God, that sounds horrible. Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, but it gets creepier. In 1876 in Paris, the Society of Mutual Autopsy was founded. I don't know what the French for that is. I'm not going to try to read it. But basically what it was, was everyone who became a member signed a form saying that upon their death, the society would remove their brain and then study it to find out why they were exceptional in life. Uh, and you'll notice I said this was the first. It was not the only. There were dozens of these societies all across the world, generally among uh, medical students, scientists, and the upper crust of society, as they called themselves. But, yeah, the whole thing of brains in jars, uh, in films, in, you know, in TV shows, etc., came from actual brains in jars. Some, there are still some medical schools and museums that possess collections of these societies or from uh, you know, the ones who could uh, would get executed criminal brains, etc. You know, and uh, you know, poor people who died without families, things like that. At one point, they uncovered... Uh, I want to say it was in the 20th century, they uncovered a scheme where uh, uh, coroners were selling brains to be studied and getting about $16 a pop for it. Yeah, And this isn't just something that happened in the 1800s. Uh, Lennon, before they stuffed him and put him on display, had his brain removed and sectioned into so many microscopic slides. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly how many it said in the postcards book, but basically... So many slides that it takes up more than one drawer in a brain research institute in Russia. And, I mean, you think about the size of a brain. I mean, think about the size of somebody's head, and the brain fits inside of that. And his brain's been sectioned into so many pieces, they can't fit it into one drawer. But, uh, but yeah, getting back to, to the subject at hand, with all this going on, it was no surprise when brains in jars... And then living brains in jars started to turn up in popular entertainment. The earliest example I could find of a brain in a jar, a living brain in a jar, let me check my notes, was in uh, the story Le Prince Bonifaci, written by Louis Ulbach in the short, short story collection L'Ile de Rêve from 1860. Uh, the first appearance in film of a brain in a jar 
that was also alive and able to communicate or whatever with the orb around it was actually in the 1930s film Charlie Chan and Honolulu. Uh, the first incidents, and I looked up this just because of uh, Dr. N- uh, Necessite. The uh, first instance uh, in fiction of a brain or mind transplant was in the story The Monster of Lake Lemaitre, written by Warden Alan Curtis in 1899, in which a man's brain is transplanted into an elasmosaurus, which is a type of dinosaur. Uh, the first appearance in film is in the 11-minute French comedy from the early 1900s, The Monkey Man. You know, so by the time we get to Anne Oumoumahe in uh, 1983, this is pretty much a well-worn trope uh, in, soci- in uh, sci-fi and uh, horror fiction and film. All right, so we've reached the point where we ask the most important question of all. Was it entertaining? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to say this is an, almost an all-in film. You kind of have to be into this kind of humor, the uh, you know quick gags, the uh, in a few cases some obvious jokes, in a few cases just some really bizarre jokes. Um, if you're familiar with Steve Martin's stand-up, the humor in this film, the, the humor in this film, the jerk, uh, dead man don't wear plaid, uh, are kind of along that vein. A little absurdist, uh, a little off kilter, uh, very quick, just one after the other after the other. There's like a running gag in his surgery uh, surgery scenes where there's a cat in the operating room for some reason. Uh, and when he says screw top, literally screw top, you will hear him as he's putting, you know, taking people, top of people's heads off and putting them back on, spins around. Especially on Kathleen Turner, it's hilarious with her long hair. You'll just see it just flopping around uh, like a furry propeller as he tightens her head. And at one point when she's uh, talking to him, he just reaches up and very not so subtly, just twists her the top of her head and you hear the grind of the skirt as he tightens it back up a little bit uh, because she's complaining of headaches. So, yeah, like I said, it's a little over top, a little absurd. But if you, if but I do recommend it. I do think it's a funny film. Uh, there are, like I said, a couple of jokes that do not land well uh, today. But the majority of the film is pretty tight, and if you're into that kind of humor, I cannot recommend it enough. It's Steve Martin, it's Carl Reiner, uh, it's Kathleen. I mean, it's a really good cast, funny story. Uh, you know, until you've seen a man go out on a date with a brain in a jar, wearing a flowery hat uh, with a pair of wax lips on it, so he can kiss it, then you, you have you really ever seen a film? I mean, honestly, until you've seen that, can you really say you've seen a good film? No. No, you can't. So that's going to wrap it up for uh, this episode, The Man with Two Brains. Uh, come back next week if you're in the mood and you're in the neighborhood. We're going to be talking about the 1980s horror film Wolfen, starring uh, Albert Finney and Gregory Hines. Uh, it tends to get lumped in a lot with werewolf films, uh, but it doesn't really deal with werewolves. It deals with a pack of intelligent, human-level intelligent wolves that live in Central Park and feed on the homeless. Uh, you know, then they start branching out and uh, getting you know other other victims, which attracts the attention of the police and uh, Albert Finney. Uh, I hadn't seen this movie in years. I, I'm really, I remember liking it when I was younger, but like I hadn't seen it in in forever. I'd, I'd almost forgotten about it. So. Kind of going into it a little blind. Uh, if you'd like to check out The Man with Two Brains, it is available for rent or buy on Amazon, 
Redbox, YouTube, Vudu, and DirecTV. Uh, if you want to check out Donovan's Brain, it's available on uh, FlixFling. Uh, so that's going to wrap it up. Uh, if you like what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell an enemy. Uh, either way, uh, you know, go back and leave a review. Uh, you can keep up with me on uh, Instagram at Celluloid Fever Dreams, Twitter at C Fever Dreams, uh, TikTok at Celluloid Fever Dreams, uh, uh, Letterboxed. Yeah, Letterboxd, you can find me on, uh, under my real name, Wyndham Jennings, uh, spelt just like it's pronounced, uh, H-F-U-H-R-U-H-U-R. Uh, if you're interested in stickers or magnets or t-shirts, I've actually posted a couple of designs on uh, Public. Go over and check out the Celluloid Fever Dreams store. And that's going to be it. Until next Thursday, I've been Wyndham Jennings. Uh, this has been Celluloid Fever Dreams. You can choose to be a lot of things in life. One of the best things you can choose to be is kind. And until then, take care of yourselves. Uh, find something in life that makes you happy. And uh, until next week, well, I'll save you a seat. Good night, Betamaxers.